0: Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were camped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now for days and years. And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back, that he may return to the place which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel.
1: Lord, we ask for your help this morning. We ask, Lord, that we can set aside the things that might be distracting us. Lord, maybe there's something that's planned after church this morning. Maybe there's something that happened at home that is on our hearts. Lord, maybe there's a a huge burden that we are coming to church with. And Lord, we just ask that by your strength and your grace that we can set those things aside so that we can give you our full attention this morning. Lord, we, we need you, and you have... Revealed your words so that you can feed us and guide us through the preaching of your words. So Lord, this morning, would you allow us to be faithful listeners, that we would work hard, Lord, at grasping your truth and, and listening to what it is that you desire for us to hear? And then Lord, simply allow me to be your mouthpiece. Would, would you speak boldly, Lord, through the words that, that I proclaim and in your strength, Lord, would you accomplish your purposes and your people? And Lord, if there's someone here? Who doesn't know you, Lord, may they be gripped by the truth and the beauty and the majesty of your gospel, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So the way I want to begin this morning is simply by asking you a question, and that is this. How do you spell deliverance? Now, this is not the spelling bee, okay? But how do you spell deliverance? And I think for many of us, we spell deliverance by another word, and it's the word Relief, just get me out of this. And that tends to be how we want God to work in our lives. And I would remind you of a very important verse of Scripture, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, that speaks to what our focus should be when we're going through trials. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation or trial there, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the the temptation or the trial, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And one of the reasons we love this verse is we see that expression, a way of escape. Yes, God, give me a way of escape. But the idea of that expression, way of escape, is literally a way of escape. Out or a way through. And so sometimes God does come and deliver us immediately by relief. Most of the time we want that, but that isn't always how God functions. In fact, many times he wants us to go through the difficulty of the trial that we're facing in order to fashion and to shape us and to mold us to be what he's called us to be. You see, if I were to take you to Yosemite, and walk out in the middle of nowhere, and drop you there, and you didn't know where you were, and say, "Hey, you know, try and find your way out, it's possible you could get lost. And maybe after three days, you'd be hoping that a helicopter would come and see you, and you'd be waving on the ground, and it would hover over you and drop a ladder down and just take you away. That's what we long for, but that isn't always what God does. Sometimes God wants us to go on the journey of going through the ravines and climbing the mountains and going through the meadows and and trying to navigate around obstacles because he is is putting us on a path for his glory and for his purposes. And as we come to our text today, uh, David has been on a journey. He has been wandering on a path, so to speak, and he is coming to a huge dilemma He has gone over to the Philistine lands. And while he is there, he has aligned himself with Achish, the king of Gath. Now, some would say that he was disobedient in that, and we kind of determined together that he wasn't disobedient. He was actually functioning in righteousness and faithfulness, and he was finding his way in that context because Saul kept on pursuing him. If you remember, he had 600 soldiers and their families and all their goods. Achish welcomed them and ultimately gave them a place, a town called Ziklag. And David took all those people down there, began living there, but would also do raiding in the south. Now, Achish thought that David was raiding his own people. But David was actually raiding the people that Israel should have dealt with initially when they came into conquest. So he was doing the Lord's work down there. And now we find David in a kind of a difficult spot. I want to begin this morning by just laying out some of the setting that the, that the narrator gives us so we can, we can understand the, the kind of backdrop to this story and why even chapter 29 is significant for us. Read, if you would, please, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring, that is Jezreel. First of all, I want us to think about chronology. Oftentimes when you're reading through a narrative story, you're thinking, oh, the next chapter must be the next step in the story. But the reality is, as the narrator of 1 Samuel is doing, he is presenting David, then he presents Saul. He's presenting David, and he's presenting Saul. He's actually giving us a comparison of the two different kings. One is yet to ascend the throne, one is on the throne and is eventually going to be taken off that throne, but we have an issue of chronology, and it's a little bit confusing. So as the events are taking place in chapter 29, um, they're actually taking place a few days before the events that took place in chapter 28. How do we know that? We know that by virtue of geography, because what we had where the Philistines had gathered in Shunem, I believe it was, in chapter uh, 28, um, now they're only in Achish. They're on their way to that location. They're on the journey to that place where they're wanting to go to battle with Israel. Okay? So this is taking place a few days earlier. So by means of chronology, we know that David was not with the Philistine army in Camp De Shunem when Saul visited the Witch of Ender. Um, he is already gone. He's already departed, based on what happens here in chapter 29. All right? That's the first thing, chronology. Second thing would be dilemma. In chapter 28, 1 and 2, this is what we read. And we kind of, we're left hanging. It's kind of like, all right, meanwhile, we're kind of taken away from the the, the story a little bit because of that comparison thing the narrator is doing. Look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, the initial reading is like, well, how is it that David could go and join up with the Philistine army and fight against his own people? And not only that, how could he be the bodyguard of Achish? Now, see, at this time, David is still a mercenary of Achish. He's under his care, so to speak. David and his men... Are, are being elevated now to a position of personal bodyguard. But the literal, the literal expression of that, what is translated bodyguard, comes from two words, head and protector. And I just want you to think about that. But when a king asks for a certain group to be the bodyguard, that is a more elite status in his army. So this is how much he thinks of David. And this is how much he wants him there. Now hold on to the thought there of this whole idea of head and protector. It will come in handy as we continue on through the story. These two verses left us ultimately a little worried, asking the question, how will David get out of this mess? How will he get out of this dilemma? So if if in chapter 27 you believe that David acted sinfully and had in faithless fear abandoned Israel and gone into the Philistine land, then you would likely be saying, see, this is what happens when you turn away from trusting God and go your own way. Your sin will entangle you so much that you end up fighting against your own people. However, if you came at it a little differently and saw David in a positive light based on the context of what was going on, we looked at that before, that you believe that David had acted in righteousness and faithfulness before God by shepherding his people into safety in the Philistine lands, you're likely to be saying, look how God, always, uh, how God is always with David, even in the most difficult situations. Certainly God will not abandon his anointed king and will somehow deliver him from this very difficult dilemma. Either way you look at it, this text shows David's deliverance. We will see in this text three agents of David's deliverance out of this extremely difficult Dilemma, three agents of David's deliverance. But there's one more, there's one more aspect of, of context or setting that we need to, need to think through, and it's, it's history. The Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. Now Aphek, in, in the recent history of Israel, was not a place you wanted to return to, because this is actually where they had one of their greatest defeats. And I'm going to read the scene from 1 Samuel chapter 4, um, verses 1 through 10, but I'm going to read just verses 10 and 11. And you'll understand why this is such a significant place and why it's not a place that they really want to go to. So, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So it was this defeat that eventually led the people to cry out to God, to Samuel, for a king like the other nations. So you think about location, and you think about memories, and you think about what happens there. This is all taking place in a significant portion of land that has some historical implications. So the question now is, how is David delivered? He's delivered, first of all, by what I'm calling suspicious commanders. Suspicious commanders. Now notice in this passage that the expression lords and commanders are used. The Philistines had five lords. Each of them were kings of respective cities. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath and Ekron. Achish is the lord, or the king, of Gath, which, by the way, is also where Goliath is from. Okay? And he is joining forces with the rest of the Philistine army at Aphix. So, So Achish, with his army, is now joining the other four kings with their armies. But not all kings are necessarily all militarily equipped, which I think you'll see clearly Akish is not, okay? And so what they do is they have commanders that oversee their armies, commanders that give them advice about war and about what's necessary for particular battles. And so they're given authority by the lords to serve them as advisors. They were the experts in war. They were the experts in conquest. But now notice their skepticism. Verse 2. And three, the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in their rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? Now, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, you understand what they're going through here, right? I mean, you understand this is a pretty basic question with a pretty basic concern, It makes complete sense. But Achish has been so deceived by David in such a profound way that he doesn't have eyes anymore to see the danger surrounding him. His only reference point is all the spoils of war from the Negev, the south, that David has brought back and given him. And so Achish quickly comes to the defense of David, and notice what he says. And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David? servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. He's saying, yes, David was the servant of Saul, but he's deserted Saul, and he's deserted to me. He's now my servant. Not only that, he has served me for fault for days and years. What do you call that? A little exaggeration. We're told specifically last chapter, I think it's chapter 27, that David was there for, anyone remember? Sixteen months, right? One year and four months. That's hardly days and years. A little exaggeration, but Achish has been taken in by David. Okay? And so the commanders are not convinced. They are rightly convinced skeptical not only that notice their anger verse 4 but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him the word angry literally means to be enraged or furious and remember these are the commanders the subordinates who are inferior or sorry who are enraged with their superior they're angry at what this king has chosen to do. So in other words, they're so enraged at the foolish ignorance of one of their superiors. They're saying things like, how could you think this would be okay? What were you thinking, bringing these Hebrews into battle with us? You you may be the Lord of Gath, but you really have no clue, do you? It is often the case that subordinates get angry with incompetent leaders for their foolishness and ignorance about the realities of life and war, isn't it? Achish was not the first, and he won't be the last. So there's this anger going on. This is fury going mean, This is heated stuff. Now notice their boldness. This is what they say. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into battle, lest in the battle he become as an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So let me just summarize what they're saying. They're saying, first of all, look at our history. Look at our history. Jonathan, if you remember... And his armor bearer in chapter 14 heroically climbed up some rocky crags to a Philistine garrison. And as a result of that, they, they jumped in there and they started to wipe out this, these Philistines. The, the, the end result of that is the Philistines fled. Now, prior to that, the Israelites had hidden in the mountains because they had no weapons. But when they saw the Philistines fleeing, what did they do? They came out of their hiding places. They chased down the Philistines and they routed them. And so there is a history here. Israel has used cunning and skill. And they've they've you know they've they've been deceptive in war, which is appropriate, and we don't want to be fooled again. Right? The old saying, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame sorry, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me once, twice, shame on me. Maybe you just need to learn how to say it, Rod. But you get the point. So the Philistine commanders remember that day and are rightly sensitive to a similar strategy. But not, not also um, David's reputation. They're saying, think about his reputation. This is a Hebrew commander that so many people have been singing about. His reputation was so great. That in, the, in the, the villages of Ekron, in the schools of Ekron, the children are singing Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. When I mean, David's reputation extends beyond the borders of Israel and is well established in the land of the Philistines. Now, even if Achish brings him highly recommended, they know David's ability as a commander, as a warrior. And they're not willing to take the chance. Now consider the opportunity. If David goes into battle, don't you think that he could restore himself to his Lord? How? By turning on us, and they're saying, by taking off our heads as a peace offering? And Achish is asking David to be his head protector. You get the irony that's going on here? The Philistine commander's suspicion of David's forces... um, really pushed them to remove David from the Philistine army and send him away. This, This is how they say it. We've read it. Send the man back. He shall not go down with us into battle. Now remember, they're speaking to a king. Now friends, we have to ask ourselves a question here. Is this coincidence? Or is this providence? Is this just circumstantial? Or is God somehow working through the sensitivity and the skepticism of these men. Is it possible that God can use enemy boldness to arrange for the deliverance of his anointed one? And the commander's words, send them back. He shall not go down with us. They're both examples of God's unusual deliverance, friends. He doesn't always work in the same way with us. He doesn't always work in ways that we would think of but be sure, God has not abandoned David and he does not abandon us. As God's children, we must believe that there is no such thing as coincidence in life, only divine providence. Now friends, it's really important because I know many of you are, have gone through or are in the midst of great difficulty and trials. And you have to ask yourself the question, how is God at work in my trial? And if God is working your trial, I shouldn't say if, since God is at work in your trial, how are you trying your best to align yourself with understanding of what He is doing? Or are you concerned only for what you want, what your heart desires? Or are you recognizing what God is seeking to do through that trial to bring glory to Himself and ultimately to bring out your good? So here you have this wonderful example of God working through pagan commanders, through pagan lords ultimately because the other four lords with the commanders turn on Achish and it's God's way of delivering David from this, I'm going to say, between a rock and a hard place. They send him away. So you're asking the question how is David going to get out of this dilemma? Not the way you thought. But it's God's way And God's way is always the best way. But notice, secondly, what I'm calling a gullible king, because I think God uses this gullible king to deliver David. Of course, the gullible king is Achish. So the suspicious commanders are forced to instruct their lord, their king, and send David back against his wishes and against his protests. Here we have God's continued deliverance of David through a weak, and gullible king, he is embarrassed. He is a reluctant king, yet he is under the control and the instructions of his subordinates and his peers. And the, the structure now of of this section is basically Akish talking to David, David then talking back to Akish, and then Akish talking to David again. So we're just going to lay it out that way. But in the midst of that, there are four words beginning with the letter D that I really want us to focus on. Okay, but notice Akish to David. He's so concerned with the decision of the commanders, Achish now comes to David in a very diplomatic manner and seeks to smooth things over in case David might be offended. Now, friends, diplomacy is, is really a learned skill. There's a story about a, a young man uh, just out of high school who was hired to work in a shoe store. And the, the shoe owner said, Listen, I'm going to ask you a question. You have a lady that comes in and she, she complains that her foot is bigger than the other. What are you going to do? And the young man said, he says, you know what? I'd say, oh, no, ma'am. If anything, one is a little smaller than the other. See, a little diplomacy can go a long way. And here Akish is going to apply some diplomacy to try and nurse David a little bit. But Akish doesn't understand the big picture of what's going on here. So there's a little bit of humor going on here as you listen to this. Diplomacy, verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in, and in with me in the campaign. Now, some have jumped to the conclusion because Achish said, As the Lord lives, that now he's a follower of Yahweh. Okay? And friends, we've got to be careful not to, not to make Scripture say something that is not clearly saying. This is simply a, a formal kind of a title, a formal expression of, of what you're saying. He's saying, listen, as the Lord's, uh, Lord lives, it's a formal and understandable way for him to kind of set things up as to what he's going to say. He's trying to give David some bad news, and so he's, he's painting the picture to help that bad news come out in a better light. But then Achish, once again, in this text, defends David. Notice what he says. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Now, this is further evidence that Achish has been totally taken in by David's deception. He's totally unaware of David's activities in the Negev. That would be the southern territory between Philistia and Egypt. But but Achish believes David to have been working on his behalf when he's going on these raids. And so uh, he's, he's trying with diplomacy to say, listen, David, I wish you could be there. I wish, I really want you to be with me. But notice now the difficulty. Akish moves from diplomacy to difficulty, saying, nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. This is what I want, but I've been outvoted. So go back now and go peaceably. In other words, I don't want any trouble, <laughs> please. Don't be mad at me that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. you get the irony in the text here. Achish has been pressured not only by the commanders, but by the other four lords as well. He is the kind of king that you wonder how he stayed in power. I mean, why hasn't anyone attempted to usurp his leadership? Or maybe the other four kings like to have him around because that means that they are in control. Of course, all that is speculation, but it does speak to the character of Achish, a man who is easily fooled, easily manipulated, easily challenged. And now Achish urges David to go back peaceably, fearing that David might be offended and might retaliate or do something foolishly. But friends, step back a little bit. This actually, I think, helps us understand why David initially When he went into the land of the Philistines, went to Gath, and went to where Achish was king. See, when he went back, this is the first time, if you remember, he went there to escape from Saul, and it's the story where he he feigns being insane. And even the servants there were saying, is this not David? The one that they sing about, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And Achish responds kind of in a really unusual kind of a um, I-have-no-clue kind of attitude going on. It says, it's fine. Yeah, he's just looking at him. He's, he's, just, he's just insane. And so you wonder whether or not, just putting the pieces together, David understood a little bit of the character of this guy so that when he was going to go into the land of the Philistines, it's like, okay, I know where I'm going because this guy can be fooled. This guy is gullible. This guy is mush, so to speak in my conniving hands. Now, I think what we have here with Akish is an example of a man who is suffering from the fear of man. It would appear, certainly in this passage, that he's passionate, but he doesn't really, he doesn't really keep um, asking questions to David, does he? He just is happy with kind of surface answers to surface questions. And he's so easily led astray through his own gullibility. The fear of man, friends, is a sin that consumes many of us, if not all of us. It pushes us to say yes to things that we should be rejecting or avoiding, and it pushes us to say no to things that we should truly desire. And our decisions are not based on biblical thinking, but what the group is thinking or what that other person is thinking. Ed Welch has written a great book. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you, you, even specifically if you have a difficulty with the fear of man or peer pressure, that kind of thing, and usually people that struggle with that are not willing to say that they are, right, because they fear what other people are going to think about them. But, but, you know, you can go on Amazon. No one needs to know about it, and you can order this. And it's a great book. It's called When People Are Big and God is Small. What a great title, first of all. When People Are Big and God is Small. And here are just a few ways that you can discern if you suffer from the fear of man. He he gives a a long list. I've just taken maybe five or six from this list and just asking the question, do you struggle with peer pressure? Now, in adults, peer pressure comes maybe in different forms than maybe as we would typically think about it during the teen years. It's the pursuit of a perfect resume because I want those people to think the best of me. It's the need for a perfect spouse, a perfect child, a perfect job. And so if, if there's something wrong with the spouse or the child or the job, I fear other people knowing about it. I fear that, that, that what other, other people are going to think about my marriage, my parenting, my job skills. It's the need for a better job title. It's the pressure to find a home in the right neighborhood, or driving the right car, or having the right body. These are all under the heading of peer pressure. Next question would be this. Are you overcommitted? You find it hard to say no, even when wisdom indicates that you should. Because you want to please people. You want to be liked. You want to be appreciated. You find yourself, thirdly here, Second-guessing your decisions because of what you perceive others might think. And so you respond by saying yes, but then you go home. Maybe it's in the context of church. And you go home, you're like, oh, why did I say yes? You ever been there? You're not allowed to admit it, okay? No, you should. Or maybe you said no. Well, you know you should have said yes. Yeah. But you find yourself second-guessing because your decision is not based on what does God want me to do. Your decision is based on what is going to please the person that is asking me the question. Or the people that are hearing the person ask the question. Here's the last one. You're jealous of other people. You're jealous of their jobs, their marriages, their financial portfolio, their children. You want so much to be like them. And so now you're measuring your life based on them. Friends, that's the fear of man because what they are doing now dictates what you should be doing. Friends, it it just, it captivates us. You know, in in high school, uh, you you see this a lot. I I remember when I was in high school, I remember when I was a youth pastor, in particular among the girls, This happens with the guys, is that you, 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 get, you, know, you get, say, a young girl who's like, I'm going I'm to dress a certain way because I want to be independent and I want to show my independence. And then you have 20 girls that are all dressed the same way. They're not really any different. They're all the same. Because they all want to fit in with whatever the new trend, the new thing is. I understand. It's okay. Fashion's a good thing. There's a place for it. But we can be so consumed with that that if I don't have the exact right thing, that someone isn't going to like me, I'm not going to fit in. And that can, that can play out in so many different ways friends. So to put it simply, the fear of man exists when we fear that people will physically hurt us, we fear that people will reject us, or we fear that people will expose us. So the fear of man causes us to not ask questions that we should be asking out of fear, The fear of man causes us to behave irrationally because we are simply wanting to please people rather than God. It's a great verse of scripture that speaks to us, Proverbs 29 and verse 25, and this is what it says. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That's Proverbs 29 and verse 25. So here we have Achish, who's acting out of the fear of man and has been ensnared by both the lords of, of the Philistines and by David's deception. You see, he, Achish now is afraid of David and he's afraid of the commanders and the lords. He's stuck. And so he has to, he has to respond where the greatest power is. Now, David to Achish. David to Achish. And here we have deception. Look at verse 8, and David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? He's laying it on thick, isn't he? Here you are, Achish, and you're like panicking because of whether or not, you know, I'm going to retaliate, and David is still, he's still playing the game. He's still in his deceptive, cunning mode. And by the way, this question, what have I done, is not a new question for David. In fact, it's a question that, that marks David's life, in, the, in particular in, in 1 Samuel. When he enters the battlefield, when Goliath is out beating his chest, if you remember that, and he's trying to find out what's going on, he goes up to his, 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 the people there and he starts asking questions. You know, why is no one going out fighting? And his brother, Eliab, comes along, And takes issue with him, and David responds, What have I done? And then to his friend Jonathan, 1 Samuel 20 and verse 1, when David is being pursued by Saul, the king who is seeking to kill David, he comes to his covenant friend Jonathan and says, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father? And then, in the presence of Saul, with Saul, 1 Samuel 26, just a few chapters before this, just after David and Abishai enter into the Israelite camp and, and take the spear and take the, um, the, the pot of, of, of water, the jug of water, David speaks to Saul the king from a distance. And he says, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? And all of those have been true and honest statements of David's character. To the question, what have I done? There was only one answer. David, you have done nothing. Now, however, David must continue his cunning facade. So with harsh, critical facial expressions and a disappointed tone, he says, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from this day I entered into your service? He plays the part so well that Achish grovels a bit in his response and the irony here is this the deceived that would be akish defends the deceiver that is david the relieved that would be david disputes the reliever that is akish so akish now speaks again to david and it's 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 really it's a message of defeat As hard as it is for Achish to admit his defeat in bringing David with him to battle, he has still been outnumbered by the commanders and the lords of the Philistines in this decision. So once again, for the third time, Achish defends David. And notice what he says, verse 9. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Now, you've got to laugh at that. Where does he come up with this stuff? Well, he comes up with this stuff because we have a sovereign God who is working even with pagan kings to say things that are actually true. What do you mean David's an angel of God? The word angel means messenger. What is David doing in 1 Samuel? He is ultimately a messenger of God that is pointing to the real king, and that is Christ. And so, out of Achish's mouth comes a prophetic statement, so to speak. This is David, who is the messenger of God. And we know ultimately that he is pointing to Christ and what he is to do. He is the greater king that is yet to come. And I cannot help but be reminded of the promise of God's word. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, even to say things like this. So God turns the heart of both discerning commanders and gullible kings to be agents of his will. So how's David going to get out of this dilemma? God's going to turn the hearts in amazing way. So now defeated Achish must swallow his fear and pride and follow the wishes of the others. And so he says, nevertheless, even though that's true, even though that's what I think of you, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us into battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Now in the expression, with the servants of your Lord who came with you, there may be a a double message of meaning there going on. Akish thinks he's talking about himself, but we know that Saul has still consistently, although he has left Saul, he is still under Saul. He has not done anything against Saul. He is still, I would say, subservient to Saul. Saul is still his Lord. But Akish is speaking more about himself. And so again, you get these, You get these couple of ironic things that are stated. So, how is David delivered? By skeptical commanders. Secondly, by by a gullible king. But ultimately, the big picture, the big character in the story is the dependable God. God is dependable to deliver his children, to deliver his anointed one. Let's look at verse 11. So, David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And so this third point really is just a reflection of the character who has been at work through this whole chapter. And there's three three emphases that I want to just pull out then of how God has been at work in this chapter. Number one, God works his providence quietly. He works his providence quietly. This text really tells us nothing specifically about God's goodness or his providence. It doesn't directly say that God did this and God did that. And that is the point. That so much that is going on in the story is God working behind the scenes in the context of David's life. And friends, that is helpful for us because we don't always hear or see or smell or touch god at work in our lives but you can be sure that his providence is at work you can be sure that although you may not see it or hear it it's it's quietly functioning in the background it's quietly at work doing what it needs to do so whether david is standing in front of goliath the giant champion of the philistines or dodging repeated spears in the palace And countless pursuits in the wilderness or even entering into enemy territory as he does here. The certainty is that God in his providence is quietly working his plan. Now the child of God and the church of God are tasked periodically to look over their lives. And acknowledge the hand of God in the affairs of their lives in order to give him praise and glory. We we know the verses of Scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But what's the next part? In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Now, you may not always see His hand at work, but you know it's there. And He's working His providence quietly through your circumstances, through your trial, through your difficulty, through your heartache. Through your challenge, God doesn't always declare His providence to us. Yet, we're privileged to discover it as we look over our lives, and we can see if we look back in our lives, you know how God moved us, maybe from this place to this place, and the significance of that, and and maybe people He brought into our lives that we realize had such an effect on our thinking and the way that we did things, and. Continue to mold and to shape us through some, maybe some key people he brought in. Or maybe it was a sermon series, or maybe it was a Bible study you did. But all these different things are all working together and are all part of God's providence, but they're happening quietly. Secondly, God works his providence surprisingly, surprisingly. Now friends, don't, don't just read the story and say, oh yeah, okay. I mean, God worked his providence through Philistine commanders and Philistine kings to deliver David what appeared to be a doomed dilemma. I don't know about you, I don't know that what I would be thinking as I'm marching with my army to Achish, or to Aphek, I should say, to be with the Philistine army who was anticipating now a full-blown war against Israel. This was no small thing. This was no small deliverance. And how God did it, was really in a surprising manner. So these are simply the instruments that God uses to rescue David from fighting against his own people. The lords and the commanders are simply players and characters in the stories that God has complete control over so that his gospel will be proclaimed about. Right? He can make the enemy your friend. He can be, make the enemy the one who is the agent of what he is seeking to do even though it seems like you're walking into a wall. I love the children's story about a Christian woman who was alone and out of food. She was praying to her Heavenly Father about the provision of food. and She had a neighbor, and her neighbor was a, an atheist, and so he thought he'd play a, di- a divine trick on her. and He knew that she was praying for food, and so he went to the grocery store and bought a couple of loaves and left them on her doorstep. And he watched from a distance, and she opened the door and saw the the groceries that were there and how she responded, and how she began to praise God. And then while in the midst of her praise, he goes over to her, and he says, Listen, you're praising God, but I'm the one that picked it up from the grocery store, and I brought it here. And she said, Oh, it was the Lord who answered my prayer, even though he used the devil to do it. (laughs) See, this is the reality, guys. God works His providence in surprising ways. Now, see, it's not—it's not our job to somehow manipulate God into His providence, right? It's our job to rest in the sovereign God who is exercising His providence. I mean, it's, it's almost like being in a in, in a raft going down a, a a river. You see obstacles around you. You see the sides, and it's dangerous, and. Maybe you have a paddle in your hand, but there's something about the current that is moving you throughout that river. The providence of God is like that current that is, that is moving you all through life. And we all have different currents, so to speak. They're all part of God's different ways of working, but He's bringing about His purposes in surprising ways. You know, I, I don't know how all of you ended up here in Castro Valley. You know, I was born in Tel Aviv, Israel. Who would have thought that I would be, you know, pastoring in Castro Valley? Some of you were born in other countries, lived in other countries. But now here you are gathered together. How does God take all these people from all different places around the world and bring them together? Because he is sovereign and he he can take each strand and each thread and he can all work it together for his purpose and for his glory. It's surprising, isn't it, how he does it, but he does it. So whether it's a story from God's word or a reflection on life, if the instrument is a Philistine or some atheist, God wants us to see his beautiful and surprising providence. And that knowledge and insight should lead us to, to meaningful worship and praise. So we would say with Paul, Oh, the depths and the, of the riches of the riches." And wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Romans 11 if you've, if you've ever reflected on just some times of trial or difficulty or ways in which you know, God provided for you, if you honestly look at it, you say, that's not how I expected it to happen. That is not the avenue that I was praying for. <laughs> you know, when we pray, we usually have something in mind it's not usually how God works. He usually has his own ways in mind, and we just kind of rest on that. So not only does God work quietly, he also works um, surprisingly, but I'd also suggest that he works his providence powerfully. There's something that, that kind of moves through these few chapters here that helps us realize that there's something significant going on here with the narrator's use of David and Saul side by side, showing them. And I just, I just want to draw your attention, first of all, to the end of chapter 28. The end of chapter 28. This is after Saul has visited the witch of Endor. This is the, the, the point at which he has now been told by, this, by, by Samuel through this, this vision, you're going to die tomorrow and your brothers in battle. And if you remember, Saul is distraught. He won't eat. And finally he does eat and he gets his strength. And here's what we're told right at the end of this chapter. Now the woman had fatted calf in the house and she quickly killed it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Now I want you to notice here's David in his dilemma. That was Saul in his dilemma. Here's David in his dilemma and notice how the chapter ends. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Saul, in the midst of darkness, is heading now at night to his darkest hour, which would be his death. David, having been delivered, leaves in the morning, yet into light. Now, it might be might not seem anything significant to you, but here you have these two kind of parallel accounts. One says darkness, one says light. God is at work taking us from darkness into light, and those who reject God ultimately are moving in the darkness and further in the darkness. So David was leaving the Philistine army under the merciful hand of God. Saul was leaving the witch of Ender under the wrathful hand of God. Just think through that. Psalm 30, verse 5 says this, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Just ponder that. David was not um, immune from darkness. He had his own times of difficulty and struggle, but here he is persevering in the light in the morning. Now, let's just draw all this together. I I want to kind of home in now just on three application points as we Look at our concluding thoughts. First of all, from this passage, I'm sorry I didn't show you that, but um, concluding thoughts. Number one, um, a comfort. God is always with his children. Now, friends, that is a comfort for us, right? No matter the journey we're on, no matter the difficulty we're facing, no matter the trial we're experiencing, God is always with his children. And I, I've said this a number of times. If I were to to ask you, just kind of quickly, a you know, popcorn, shout out, kind of, you know, what's your, you know, what's your favorite attribute of God? One of the things that will come out top five is that He is always with us. There's something very comforting about knowing that no matter where we are, God is with us in the middle of that trial, and as we celebrate our joys. And friends, we 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 ought to be thankful. And we ought to praise Him for His constant presence with us as we journey through life. Again, in the good times, in the bad times. And and, and if you've gone through trials recently, you've been holding on to Him. And you are assured of His presence with you, whereas other people who don't know God are walking by themselves. And they're they're getting counsel from people who have no hope. And the counsel they get is empty counsel. They're just platitudes that mean nothing. Whereas knowing that God is walking with you because you've seen the example over and over again in Scripture and it's been promised to you because you're a child of God, that gives you hope and that gives you confidence to live your life for His glory. Secondly, I want to just mention a caution. A caution. Be careful that as we talk about the subject of providence, be careful that you don't interpret God's providence to suit your sinful and selfish desires. Because you might look at the providence of God and come to wrong conclusions. Let me just paint a picture with kind of an extreme example. So there's a businessman in a shaky marriage. And he's asked by his company to go on a sales trip with two other co-workers, a man and a woman. But because he's in this shaky marriage, he has noticed this woman at work. And so he's thinking to himself, wow, God's opened up a door an opportunity here maybe for me to get to know this person a little bit a little bit more maybe to satisfy some of the things that that I've been lacking and it might just simply be a conversation that is a conversation that he shouldn't be having with this co-worker he should be having that with his wife but he can be quick in his mind to begin to think aha see isn't God kind in doing this and friends that's how sin works it takes what God is doing and it twists it to say something completely different. It twists it to satisfy yours and my own sinful desires. See, our thinking is so easily tainted. It's called the noetic effect of sin. That means that there's this, the thinking is affected by our sinful attitudes and the sin in us. So, friends, guard your heart and feed it with biblical wisdom that flows out of Christ's lordship of your life, if he is provident in your life, he is sovereign in your life, then it would be good for you to listen to what he says. It would be good for you to actually want to hear what he says, to hear his counsel about your particular situation, what trial you're facing, what difficulty is before you. So when you recognize his providence, exercise biblical wisdom that flows out of Christ's lordship of your life, rather than nurse your own sinful heart so that you twist the challenge of biblical wisdom and turn it into the wisdom of a sinful heart. Now remember, wisdom is the skill of applying what you know. So biblical wisdom is taking God's truth, and over time you build and you grow in that area of of wisdom, but you're taking God's truth, and you are more skillful today in applying biblical wisdom Truth to your life. That's wisdom. It's the application of truth. But here's the problem. We also become very, very skillful at applying our own sinful desires and twisting God's word so that we can accomplish the things that we want to do. Put it a little differently, the sinful heart wisdom is skillfully taking God's word and using it to justify your sinful desires and behavior and Being able to argue against those who, in love, may come alongside and challenge you. And you probably have known people like that. People that have been a part of the church family, or a church family, or maybe you've known them as believers, and they're wandering away from God, and they're somehow saying, you know what, where I am, actually God is fine with this. When clearly he's not. But they have convinced themselves because they've twisted God's word to say something different than it's actually saying. And so now they're not even willing to listen to counsel or to the guidance or to the authority of Christ in their life. It's a tough place to be. It's a tough place to come alongside someone when they're gripping the word of God or the things of God in a distorted way. So we've looked at the idea of comfort. We've looked at the idea of, of caution. But we want to now focus on Christ himself. How does the Spirit of God use David as the angel or messenger of God in this passage? Let's think of some some shadows in this story that point to Christ. Number one, just think through this. David was accused of turning against the Philistines. Similarly, Jesus is accused by the religious rulers of sedition by claiming to be a king. They were threatened by his presence and wanted him to go away. Ultimately go away by murdering him and killing him off. David, having been accused of sedition, is defended by the most unlikely of characters, Achish, who three times says, I have found no fault in him to this day. I have found nothing wrong in you. I know that you are blameless. Similarly, Jesus is defended by Pilate, who three times says, I find no guilt in this man. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. I have found him or in him no guilt deserving of death. So, three times, Christ is defended by Pilate. Three times, David is defended by Achish. Both Pilate and Achish were, you might want to say, overruled by the people under them. Manipulated by the people under them or peers of them to do something that they really didn't want to do. The third thing is this. Achish was weak and gave in to David's accusers. Pontius Pilate also gave in to Jesus' accusers. But in each case, in each case, this was God's providential plan to bring About their respective kingdoms. David would would be sent away to go back to Ziglag. Jesus would be sent away via the cross. And that was all part of God's plan. My friends, as we as we gather here this morning, as we think about God's providence, as we think about how He delivers us from our situations, He's not always going to come along with a helicopter and and pick us up from our, our place of difficulty. Many times he's going to want us to walk through to trust him in the midst of it and to see how he is at work in the midst of that so that we can be reinforced in our trust of him so we can learn about his character, we can learn about ourselves. And so all of this helps us paint a picture of understanding why we need Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and why even today as we celebrate the Lord's table, why we need him afresh. Well, as we gather and we celebrate by eating the the, the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, and and eating the, the wafer, which represents the body of Christ, we are reminded that Jesus Christ did this on the cross for us, and hear this, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. It is Christ's righteousness that is placed on us. And it's because of Jesus that we can be declared righteous, we can be considered righteous. So we need to be reminded of those realities as we gather and we celebrate this Lord's table. And friend, if you're going through a trial, if you're, if you're harboring sin, if you are fighting against your sinful desires this morning and you're saying, God, I need your help, I want your help, I want to do your will, I need clarity, I need wisdom, I need biblical wisdom, I need to to see your providence or or at least understand your providence and submit myself to that providence, friends, I'm just telling you, you need the Lord's table this morning. This is not just a ceremony we go through. It is a reminder of the core realities of our faith with God, our trust in God. Him, and it takes us back to the place where we say once again, God, you are my all in all, and I totally submit myself before you. It is only by your body and through your blood that I have entered into this relationship, into this new life in Christ, into this body, into this perfect and wonderful, intimate um, family that you you have established And I need to be reminded, I need to be strengthened, I need to be reoriented back to where the gospel is center in my life, and Christ reigns. Would you join us today as we celebrate the Lord's table? If you're here and you're visiting and you don't know Christ as your Savior, or if you're here and you are harboring sin and you don't want to change, I'm just going to encourage you, don't take the elements. But if you're saying, God, I'm in the grip of sin, but I, but I need your strength, that's a different heart attitude. You're welcome to come and to join with us today. Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We've seen, Lord, in this passage, in this text, as we've moved through it, just the, the ways in which you deliver in, in, in miraculous ways. How your hand of Providence is constantly at work. And in the life of David, Lord, we've seen it over and over again. And that doesn't necessarily mean that ours is always going to be the same and it's going to be as flashy. But Lord, the confidence that we have is that you are present and that you are sovereign, that you are God. So Lord, help us to rest in you, to lean on you and to be mindful of our sinful hearts and how they can be drawn away and to delight that you want to lead us down the path of light, out of darkness. And Lord, that with you at our side, Lord, we can face whatever it is that you have decided to to be down our path. But Lord, we, we need to be reminded of the central reality. Lord, that is the gospel. That is your Son, So this morning, allow those realities now to filter into our hearts, to cleanse, Lord, areas that that need repentance, to restore us, Lord, back to a place where you are our focus and you are our God, completely holy, and we are fully submitted to you. We ask this now in your precious name, amen.